Welcome to the Oxford Undergraduate Law Podcast, where we discuss the law, its relationships with society and its implications on our everyday lives. I'm Chen. I'm Dorothea, and we are your podcast editors. Today, we'll be joined by Professor John Armour and Professor Tom Wetzer, who will be discussing their research paper on green pills in making corporate climate commitments credible. The research paper is joint work with Professor Luca Enriquez, who unfortunately could not be present for the discussion today. Professor John Armour is a Professor of Law and Finance at Oxford University and a Fellow of the British Academy and the European Corporate Governance Institute. He studied at the University of Oxford and then Yale Law School and has held visiting posts at various institutions, including the University of Chicago, Columbia Law School, the University of Frankfurt, the Max Planck Institute for Corporate Private Law in Hamburg and Sydney Law School. He is a member of the American Law Institute and an academic member of the Chancery Bar Association. Professor Armour has published widely in fields of company law, financial regulation and corporate insolvency. Professor Tom Wetzer is Associate Professor of Law and Finance at the University of Oxford and the Founding Director of the Oxford Sustainable Law Programme. At Oxford, Professor Wetzer is also a Fellow of Lineker College, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for New Economic Thinking at the Oxford Martin School, a member of the leadership team at the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment, co-lead at Oxford Net Zero, lead researcher at the Oxford Martin Initiative for a Net Zero Recovery and a member of the Oxford Man Institute of Quantitative Finance. Professor Wetzer's research examines how law and finance can generate value and advance the public good, focusing on how we can build more resilient financial systems, improve the governance of corporations and tackle the climate crisis. Professor Armour and Professor Wetzer, welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting us. Uh, we're delighted to be here with you today. The proposal in your joint research paper, Green Pills, responds to the lack of credibility in corporations' announcements to reduce their carbon emissions. How does this credibility problem arise and why do credible corporate climate commitments matter? So that's a great question to start off with. And maybe before we delve into it, let's take one step back and ask why we should care about corporate climate commitments to begin with. Um, We all know that climate change is a pressing societal challenge, uh, and we know that governments under the Paris Agreement have uh, decided to take action to bring global emissions down to net zero by 2050. The question is, what does that governmental commitment mean for companies? Do companies have an obligation to reduce their emissions to net zero as well? And perhaps surprisingly, by and large, in most jurisdictions, the answer is that they do not have such an obligation. There are, of course, some exceptions to this rule. Um, In the car industry, for example, there have been net zero requirements introduced for the cars that are being produced. Uh, There are some companies that have been subjected to court judgments uh, that force these companies to move to net zero. Um, And of course, new legislation may be introduced that introduces a broader requirement for companies to move to net zero. But at this stage, for most companies in most jurisdictions, there is no such requirement yet. And that means that taking climate action, by and large, is a voluntary affair for most uh, corporations. And that then raises the question, um, what is the value of the announced climate commitments, the voluntary climate commitments that companies uh, have showed to the world, if you will. So against that background um, that Tom set out, we characterize the credibility problem with corporate climate commitments as being one that arises where a firm, a private company, expresses an intention to reduce its carbon emissions in the future. So that intention may look great, but in many cases, the intention appears only to be an aspiration, a hope, uh, and it's not backed by action or any form of commitment to actually delivering on that aspiration. So an example, um, and this is just one of many that we could pick, uh, is Shell, which uh, announced last year very publicly its aspiration to become a net zero emissions energy business by 2050, um, in line with the Paris Agreement. But the pathway to this is arguably inconsistent with 
Shell's current plans and strategies. And if we look closely at what Shell has said, small print explained uh, that Shell's uh, delivery on uh, net zero emissions by 2050 is dependent on societies changing along the way. Um, and we can understand that as meaning that Shell expects uh, carbon taxes and other policies to be introduced by governments that will uh, make it more economic for uh, Shell to shift to net zero. Uh, and conversely, that if that doesn't happen, uh, then uh, a voluntary shift uh, is not something that it's uh, anticipating. So why does this matter? Why, why does the credibility of these um, undertakings matter? Well, it matters in a, in, a, in a relatively narrow sense for parties who deal with firms because they increasingly care about what firms are doing. Customers increasingly care about the way in which their products are sourced. Investors increasingly care uh, about the carbon emissions of companies uh, that they're putting money into. Uh, and these parties need to know uh, whether firms mean what they say uh, when they make undertakings about reducing emissions. More fundamentally, um, and going back to the, the background that Tom set out, uh, this is a problem for society because governments have made undertakings, but notoriously uh, they're dragging their feet on uh, bringing in the necessary change. Uh, so we may hope that the private sector uh, can put a foot forward uh, and we need to know whether these uh, undertakings are real. Thank you for contextualising this problem and explaining the importance of corporate climate commitments. On that point, given the increasing costs of climate change and the opportunities which can arise from a transition to a net zero economy, is there a business case for transition to a net zero economy, which could sufficiently compel firms to credibly commit? So there is a business case, but not everyone agrees on how strong that business case is. So what's the challenge? The challenge is that because there is no requirement on the part of the government to, you know, that companies decarbonize, and there's actually not a very clear policy framework in general around decarbonization, there's a lot of policy uncertainty. And investors have to grapple with that uncertainty. And, you know, to simplify things a little bit, uh, what we say is that investors, broadly speaking, they differ on two dimensions. The first is the expectation uh, and wh whether they think effectively that the, the economy is going to transition to a net zero economy. Uh, and <clears throat> they also differ on the normative dimension, which is how much do they actually care about climate change? And based on these two dimensions, we can distinguish between two classes of shareholders. The first class is what we call the class of climate indifferent shareholders. Uh, these are not shareholders and investors that are driven by a sort of normative commitment to fighting climate change. They are driven by profit maximization. And on average, these climate indifferent shareholders do not necessarily put a high expectation on the transition happening. And so even though they may account for the costs and benefits associated with the transition, uh, they are not by themselves necessarily sufficiently motivated to drive forward the transition at a company level. The second class of investors might be, and this second class is what we call the climate conscious investors. Um, climate conscious investors place a higher value on transition, uh, and that might be because they attach a higher probability to society transitioning, or uh, they may have a higher normative value associated with the companies they invest in transitioning. Uh, whichever it may be, in fact, it may be both simultaneously. Uh, that means that these kinds of investors are likely to push companies to decarbonize. Now, what's complicated is that boards are kind of caught in the middle of these two groups of investors. So, they are having an investor base that is heterogeneous, and that means some investors will be climate indifferent, others will be climate conscious. And the challenge for the board is that they have a fiduciary duty to act in the best interests of the company. And that's generally understood as maximizing value. And that fiduciary duty is overlaid with the Fed, with executive compensation that is paid out in stock, uh, and of course by the threat of removal by shareholders. And so the board, being stuck in the middle, is trying to satisfy both investors, or both classes of investors, at the same time. And one way in which they might do that is by seeking to satisfy the climate indifferent investors whilst also benefiting 
from the investments from climate conscious investors. And how might you do that? Well, you might do that by effectively committing to going green, but doing so at minimum cost. And that might mean that you make a promise to transition in the future rather than today, or that you promise to go green, but retain sufficient flex as part of that promise to be able to transition away from going green, uh, if that is what shareholders would like you to do uh, in a future date. Um, and that is a perfect example of greenwash, because what it means is that all kinds of investors who do care about climate change may look at your commitments and say, well, wait a second, uh, this is very interesting for us and we're going to invest. That means the company benefits from a lower cost of capital, but they don't, they don't actually deserve that. They don't take the actions to back up uh, their green claims. Uh, that's, a, that's a standard greenwashing problem. Um, and it's the kind of problem uh, that uh, the, the mechanism that we discuss in this paper uh, is meant to address. Yes, and your explanation of the different classes of investors is really useful in explaining firms' attitudes to credibly committing and how the problem of greenwashing actually arises from that. So thank you. So you've demonstrated the need for corporate climate commitments, but in your paper, you argue that traditional corporate governance mechanisms are inadequate in ensuring that firms deliver credible commitments uh, to reduce emissions. Why is this the case? So that's a great question. Um, before I start talking about governance mechanisms, let me just um, elaborate on the, the core problem. So the core problem here is uncertainty over the costs and benefits of transition to um, lower carbon emissions. And that uncertainty means that the position that uh, boards and others acting on behalf of the company take about how desirable it is to reduce emissions will also change on time, over time um, as information emerges about those costs and benefits. So just to give a flavor of this, firstly, our scientific understanding of the uh, costs of climate change and the physical costs associated with that is evolving all the time. Uh, those estimates are changing as a result. Secondly, uh, the costs and benefits of companies uh, reducing emissions depend uh, on uh, government policies, uh, in particular the introduction of taxes and subsidies uh, that are helping them to uh, make it economic to uh, reduce emissions and the speed at which that's happening, the extent to which it's happening is uncertain. Uh, new, new information is emerging all the time. And then thirdly, there are just uh, geopolitical events uh, that create shocks periodically uh, to the framework that change uh, the uh, cost and assessments of costs and benefits. So uh, Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine last year, um, the Saudis' uh, announcement that they're going to reduce uh, oil production uh, just today uh, are examples of these that impact the costs and benefits of uh, having uh, clean energy uh, and will therefore affect uh, the uh, pricing that firms put on decisions to move. So against this background of uncertainty, how does that interact with corporate governance? Well, at the centre of corporate governance is the board of directors, uh, and they are tasked with overseeing the firm's strategy, uh, and they have fiduciary duties to act in the best interests of the company, what they believe to be the best interests of the company. Uh, and so uh, in doing so, they're going to act on the basis of information that they have available to them. And if that information changes, uh, what they may want to do uh, may change. Uh, their um, thinking about this is typically mediated uh, through uh, compensation arrangements, remuneration arrangements that pay them uh, in uh, a way that is aligned with the value of the firm's shares. So if the firm's shares are publicly traded in the stock market, uh, then as the price of those shares moves, uh, the value of the pay that the, the, the directors get will uh, move accordingly. Uh, so they're thinking about things that will affect the stock price. They're thinking, and as new information is revealed uh, that may affect the stock price, they will adjust their actions accordingly. Uh, so this means that we can think about their decision making as uh, responding to uh, new information uh, about uh, costs and benefits. And against that background of uncertainty, uh, that makes it hard uh, to be sure uh, exactly what companies are going to be doing. 
because their governance structures uh, impel them to follow or respond to uh, these uh, wider drivers uh, of uh, the um, uh, emissions uh, background. There are other mechanisms of corporate governance that we might look to. Uh, so one would be to structure the board uh, in a way as to have uh, some members of it specifically assigned responsibility for the firm's climate policy. So to have a, uh, a climate committee on the board and we might put people on there who have some expertise and understanding uh, the issues at stake and give them the remit of uh, formulating the firm's policy in response to that. Uh, and you might think that if they've articulated a policy, that would then uh, embed the firm uh, on a particular pathway. But we can explore how binding a commitment that would be uh, by thinking about what would happen if there's a sudden shock uh, that made it suddenly more costly than expected for firms to uh, stick to uh, the pathway that they had articulated. Uh, and a climate committee is uh, appointed by the shareholders the boards of directors of, uh, of all companies are appointed by the shareholders. Uh, and if the uh, majority of the shareholders uh, didn't want the firm to continue on a particular pathway, uh, then they would be able to uh, remove the directors if they wanted to. Uh, and the directors could be expected to anticipate that, to respond to it, uh, and to change course uh, if uh, what uh, they were proposing to do had suddenly become uh, more expensive. Another mechanism uh, that we discuss in the paper that some people think is a possible uh, uh, means of uh, delivering commitment is through disclosure. Uh, so companies are required to disclose information about their financial affairs to uh, public markets. Uh, and obviously, to ensure that this information is disclosed truthfully, uh, there are liability regimes in place that uh, make, make uh, sure that if firms uh, make misleading uh, material statements or emissions, uh, then they can face liability to investors. Uh, so we might think that if the firm discloses that it is intending to pursue a transition pathway, there might be liability associated um, with a failure to uh, deliver on that. Uh, actually, as it turns out, we think the risk of liability um, is relatively modest, uh, and that means that this doesn't really serve to function as a credible commitment mechanism. Uh, the risk of liability is modest for two uh, principal reasons. The first is that if the firm discloses that it is intending to uh, move on a pathway to transition, uh, that's a statement of fact at the time when it makes the disclosure. Uh, and if new information emerges that means that the firm changes its intention, uh, then as long as the firm tells the markets at that time that it's changing its intention, it hasn't made any false disclosure at all. Secondly, even if the firm did make a disclosure, which was found to be false, the quantum of liability or the quantum of damages rather that it would face uh, to uh, investors is measured by reference to the investor's financial loss as a result of the misstatement. Uh, but the harm uh, that's triggered uh, by uh, changing tack on uh, a, a commitment to reducing emissions uh, is uh, far beyond uh, the uh, quantum of any uh, financial loss that investors might suffer. Indeed, investors might be better off financially uh, if the firm uh, reneges on a commitment that turns out to be expensive for them. Uh, and so for these reasons, um, disclosure and liability associated with it uh, also doesn't deliver a credible uh, commitment. So uh, I hope that helps to clarify why we think that uh, firms need to I think outside the framework of traditional uh, corporate governance mechanisms uh, when seeking to craft credible commitments to reducing emissions. Yes, thank you for clarifying that there seems to be a governance gap almost in terms of traditional corporate uh, governance being insufficient in ensuring credible climate commitments. That moves on quite nicely to your own proposal of green pills. So could you explain what this entails and how this mechanism helps to fill the governance gap, ensuring corporate climate commitments are credible? So what we uh, propose in our paper, and it's joint work um, with Professor Luke Enriquez, uh, who's not able uh, to be here today, um, is that firms enter into a contractual undertaking uh, to make a fixed payment if they don't deliver on uh, certain performance indicator regarding their uh, 
reduction in emissions. So they set a target for emissions reduction to be delivered by a certain date. Uh, and there is a, um, a, a payment uh, that the firm undertakes to make uh, if it doesn't deliver on that. Um, and that payment then uh, gives a signal of the credibility of the firm's uh, commitment to deliver on the undertaking because it's saying we're either going to meet this target by the specified date or uh, we're going to pay this amount of money. Um, so if we go back to what I was saying a moment ago about the variability in costs and benefits, what this is saying is the firm is committing that as long as the costs and benefits don't change by more than the amount of the payment, uh, then uh, investors can rely on the firm delivering its commitment. Uh, so what this does uh, is it unites the interests of uh, investors who are uh, uh, climate conscious, who want the firm to reduce its emissions, and those who are climate indifferent, uh, who don't care about the firm's emissions, but just care about it maximizing the value of its stock. Uh, so once the firm has undertaken to make this payment, uh, the climate indifferent investors will not want the firm to pay the money out if it is cheaper for the firm to deliver on the emission reduction, uh, and the climate conscious investors will want the firm to deliver on the emission reduction per se. Uh, and so as long as the difference in cost and benefits is less than the amount of the payment that's promised, then all the firm investors will want it to uh, reduce its emissions. Thank you for explaining this. And the fact that your proposal unites the interests of traditional investors and climate conscious investors highlights its utility. Moving on to examining the green pill mechanism in further detail, you state that green pills are contractual mechanisms. How does their contractual nature enhance the credibility of corporate climate commitment? How do they differ from standard contracts? Thanks. Yeah, so um, having a contractual undertaking means that the firm is legally bound to pay the um, sum of money uh, that is promised in the alternative. It doesn't uh, meet its climate, um, its emission reduction undertaking. What this does is it puts a uh, finite bound on the level of commitment that the firm is making. So it's not making zero commitment and it's not making an unlimited commitment. So if it specifies uh, X million pounds as the amount that it's going to pay um, if the uh, target is not met, that's the amount that the firm is committing by. That's the amount that the firm is willing to spend on reducing emissions before uh, it becomes cheaper for the firm just to make a payment uh, and not uh, reduce emissions any further. So as you said before, the costs and benefits of emission reduction are changing over time. Uh, and it may well be that an event occurs that makes it suddenly much more expensive or more expensive than the firm thought uh, to reduce uh, its emissions in the way that it had previously uh, undertaken. Uh, and if that additional cost is greater than the size of the payment, it will make sense for the firm just to make the payment and not uh, continue to reduce emissions. But as long as the change in costs and benefits is less than the amount of the payment, then the firm is committing uh, to uh, reducing emissions. And that then allows people to plan, it allows people to make sense of, of, of the, the degree of commitment. Uh, so it's not just that the firm is making a commitment which is credible, but the degree of credibility uh, is given by the size of the amount that it's promising to pay if it doesn't deliver. Yes, thank you for explaining that. The fact that a contract-based mechanism can be used to deliver a degree of commitment that can be tailored to the firm's circumstances is, is really interesting and novel. So thank you for that. So what examples are there of green pills already in use? So the, the good news is that green pills are no longer purely hypothetical. Uh, we do in fact see a number of mechanisms that companies have adopted that really mirror the kind of mechanism that we propose. Um, perhaps the most common example is that of a sustainability linked bond. Um, let me just tell you something about one company that has adopted such a bond. It's an Italian energy company called Enel. And Enel has issued bonds, the sustainability-linked bonds, 
that have an interest rate that moves around depending on whether NL meets its sustainability commitments. So NL has established uh, certain KPIs, for example, uh, the amount of installed renewable energy capacity and the interest rate of the bonds that they've uh, issued will move around on whether they're going to meet uh, that KPI. So if the company meets its installed renewable capacity target, the interest rate will stay the same. If the company fails to meet that KPI, the interest rate on the bonds will go up by something like 25 basis points. Now, how much is that in practice? Um, that's an amount of increased borrowing costs that you can measure in the millions. You might say increased borrowing costs going up by uh, several millions of dollars um, is not that much, it's relatively modest in comparison to the market capitalization of the company, which is measured in the billions. But what matters here is that the introduction of this sustainability linked bond helped establish the practice of a green deal style mechanism in the market. In the case of NL, it also made it a quite significant cultural difference because what it means is that the chief financial officer, the CFO, is now invested in the company meeting its climate KPIs because whether or not the company meets its climate, its climate KPIs is going to affect borrowing costs. Um, and beyond NL, uh, more and more companies are now following suit and they're adopting the sustainability-linked bonds or other sustainability-linked instruments as well. So we have an emerging market for these kinds of instruments. So, yeah, just as Tom said, uh, it, it's very interesting because when we started this project um, two or three years ago, uh, we, we, did, we weren't actually aware of any examples. It was a purely hypothetical exercise. And then uh, as we got into it, we discovered uh, the NL example, which we think is perhaps the first one uh, that we're aware of. Uh, but then uh, in the time since then, uh, this type of uh, undertaking by firms have really taken off dramatically. It's been very, very growth uh, in, in North America and elsewhere in, in these kinds of uh, sustainability covenants uh, in uh, corporate borrowing agreements. Yes, and it's important to highlight that, as you say, the green pill is not just a hypothetical model, but it's one that can be implemented by corporations in practice. So, so thank you for that. If we look to the theoretical issues that may arise in implementing green pills, can it be said that the adoption of green pills aligns with existing principles under corporate law? Uh, yes, we think it, uh, it very much does so. Uh, so as I said before, um, at the heart of um, the board's um, corporate law uh, obligations are their fiduciary duties. Uh, so um, the board of directors of a, of a UK company, or indeed um, most uh, public companies in most jurisdictions, owe a duty uh, to act in the best interests of the company. Um, and that is a duty that they, uh, uh, that is, is framed in terms of uh, the subjective beliefs of the director, so what they believe to be the interests of the company. Um, so they have to act in, in good faith in accordance with what they believe to be the interests of the company. Uh, in uh, English law, under section 172 of the Companies Act 2006, uh, there's a list of factors that the board have to take into consideration in discharging their duty to act in the best interest of the company, and that includes uh, the impact of the company's actions on the environment. So um, entering into a commitment to uh, reduce emissions, uh, a, commission, a commitment that is bounded um, by a uh, figure in the way that we have described um, is consistent with the board's duty to act in what they believe to be the interests of the company, where um, by making this commitment, as we explained, the firm is able to secure investment more cheaply from climate conscious investors. So just to run through the steps, the climate conscious investors want to uh, buy investments which are associated with lower carbon emissions as well as financial returns. So they're willing to pay more for investment for lower financial emissions, lower carbon emissions. Um, they will increasingly look for credibility uh, in firms' uh, commitments to lowering emissions because they don't want to pay extra for firms that don't actually deliver. Uh, so making the 
uh, commitment credible will be key to actually attracting the uh, premium uh, investment from the climate conscious investors. Uh, so by entering into the commitment, the firm can uh, attract capital more cheaply. So that means that the uh, directors would be able to say that they think it's in the interest of the company uh, because they've attracted this capital more cheaply and they've also done through done so through uh, their emissions. You know, if things change and costs emerge that, that make it more expensive for the firm to stick to uh, its commitment, then by locking it in to a certain uh, uh, quantum of uh, payments if the firm doesn't deliver, uh, the firm may, the directors may have made things more expensive for themselves uh, if that happened. So we might say, well, hang on a minute. Uh, is it really in the interest of the company to lock yourself into this commitment? Wouldn't it be more in the interest of the company to retain flexibility so that you can change course uh, if new costs emerge? Well, yes and no. Uh, it is in the interest of the company to have flexibility, but if they keep complete flexibility, the climate conscious investors won't believe them at the start. They won't, they won't be willing to, um, uh, uh, invest and they, the firm won't be able to secure a lower cost of capital from them. Uh, so it needs to make some level of commitment in order to induce the climate conscious investors to invest. But equally, it doesn't want to set that commitment in concrete, uh, so that the, the firm can never renege on it. Um, because if the cost were to increase dramatically, it might be more than uh, the amount of the discount in the cost of capital that they can get from the climate conscious investors. So that's why having a finite uh, undertaking um, is desirable. And that's why we think our mechanism is clearly one that's compatible with uh, directors' fiduciary duties. Now then, of course, you might say, well, how much is the appropriate level of commitment for a firm to enter into? Uh, and that depends on uh, its investor base, it depends on its costs of transition, it depends on many factors that the board are probably best placed to assess. Uh, but uh, in setting the quantum, uh, again, that's uh, something that the board should do uh, acting consistently with their duty to act in the best interest of the company. Uh, but if, if it were to be challenged, if it were to be said that the board had entered into a commitment that was too big or maybe too little uh, in terms of the amount of money at stake, uh, we have to bear in mind that the duty to act in the best interest of the company is a subjective one. It's what the directors think of the interest of the company, not what the core thinks. Uh, and so this is a mechanism uh, where to attract liability, uh, somebody who was challenging it would need to show that what the board had done was so unreasonable that no reasonable board of directors could have thought it was in the interest of the company, that it was beyond uh, the bounds of what a rational uh, board of directors could have thought was in the interest of the company. And that's quite a difficult standard uh, for somebody challenging it to meet. Uh, we have to show that it was uh, wholly outside uh, the realm of plausibility that the level of commitment that the firm had entered into uh, was uh, compatible uh, with the framework that we've, uh, that we've set down. By the way, it was, it was um, harmful uh, to the interest of the company. So, um, we, the, the, the subjective nature of the duty gives boards some space to set business policy, space free from uh, legal challenge. Uh, and within that space, they can use the uh, finite level of commitment to secure investment from climate conscious investors. Uh, and that is in the interest of the company. Uh, and that is how uh, this is uh, aligned with existing principles. So it's important to emphasize uh, that point because you can come up with all kinds of policy changes that would mean companies move to net zero. Um, but the problem with all of that is that it's contingent on governments actually acting. And as we discussed before, governments are notoriously slow to act on this particular issue. And that is why it is so valuable to, to be able to conclude that introducing a green deal is actually consistent with existing principles of corporate law, because what that means is that in principle, a company could adopt a green deal tomorrow. Yes, thank you. And as you've explained, if there aren't any issues with the adoption of green pills um, coming into tension with existing principles in corporate law, uh, that does make it easier to implement green pills as soon as possible. Moving to uh, examining 
issue of implementation of green pills in practice. Are there any issues that may arise from the implementation of green pills in practice? Yeah, so um, I think uh, I'd just like to focus on two uh, that we uh, outlined in the paper. Um, so one is a potential legal issue, uh, and for listeners who uh, have studied or are studying contract law, uh, this may be something that you're already aware of, um, and that's what's called the rule and penalty clauses. Uh, so this applies where um, uh, somebody enters into a promise, they say that they can do something, uh, and then if they don't do it, they have to pay uh, a large sum of money. Um, and um, the law generally uh, is suspicious of these kinds of uh, promises because they think that they can be uh, used to uh, uh, as, as a means of coercion uh, for uh, vulnerable parties to uh, become required to uh, meet their contractual promises um, where doing so is, is, is out of all proportion uh, to the real value of the state. Um, so there are two ways um, that, that uh, green pills, as we described in uh, canon, are structured uh, to uh, avoid this practical problem. Uh, and so the first is to characterise the undertakings that the firm enters into uh, as alternatives. So it's not if the firm doesn't deliver uh, its um, uh, emission reduction, it promises uh, by way of compensation to make a payment uh, of X. Million dollars. Rather, what the firm does is it says it will either uh, deliver on uh, its undertaking or it will make the payment. So there are two alternative uh, promises that the firm is making, and the firm can choose uh, which one to do. So that's a very formal uh, response to the uh, rule and penalty clauses. Um, might be accepted by the courts in some jurisdictions, but in others, uh, they might say, well, this is just an attempt to evade the rule and we would characterize it as a penalty clause. So the, uh, 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 probably the more robust way of doing this is to say that the payment that the firm is undertaking is a, a genuine pre-estimate of the loss that the climate conscious investors would suffer uh, if the firm doesn't deliver on its emissions. Because remember, the climate conscious investors are willing to pay extra for investments that are green, that are associated with reducing emissions. And that's because they care about this. They, they care not just about the money, but about something else, uh, reducing emissions. So they're paying for that up front. Uh, and then if the firm doesn't deliver, they suffer a loss because they don't get what they paid for. But in contract law, uh, damages are generally calculated by reference to the financial consequences uh, for the party that hasn't received performance. Uh, and so in this case, uh, the uh, investors um, uh, dissatisfaction about the emissions not being um, uh, uh, reduced uh, might not be something that would be uh, easily calculable uh, in, uh, in under, under the ordinary damages framework. Uh, and so we can understand the uh, green pill payment as a payment of liquidated damages, that is a pre-agreed estimate uh, of the uh, non-financial loss that the climate conscious investors would suffer. That's the first um, practical issue. The second um, is something that we don't see yet, um, but that we could imagine emerging uh, if the use of green pill mechanisms was scaled. That is, if the uh, amount of money that was being undertaken were to grow significantly uh, along with uh, growth in uh, climate conscious investing. Uh, so firms were making bigger and bigger commitments, uh, then uh, this, prob this problem might emerge as a practical one. And the problem is that uh, what might happen is that if there's a very large amount of money uh, at stake, um, which will be paid uh, to investors um, if the firm doesn't deliver uh, on its uh, emission reduction, uh, then there might be some unscrupulous uh, parties in the market uh, who might offer to buy up um, uh, the, uh, uh, the securities uh, that have been issued to the climate conscious investors. Uh, and they might also uh, buy uh, shares in the company, uh, use those shares to cause the company to uh, appoint different directors who change policy uh, and trigger a breach of the Green Pill undertaking and a payment then to the investor. Uh, and that might be uh, uh, something that might be a, a perverse uh, consequence where actually uh, people who, who come to hold the securities, they don't, they don't care about the reduction in emissions, they just care about the money, uh, and they see violation of the 
green pill undertaking as a way to trigger a large payout uh, in an opportunistic fashion. Um, and that's what we uh, would characterize as dirty voting. That is where the, uh, the, the people wanting to attract the payout use the votes attached to their shares to procure the company uh, to breach its undertaking regarding emission reduction in order to then trigger payment to investors. And to avoid that, um, we suggest that the where, where large, very large amounts are at stake, uh, the firm should undertake not to pay it to the uh, climate conscious investors themselves, but rather to a third party, uh, such as uh, uh, an NGO that is uh, committed to uh, transitioning or committed to policies or implementing policies that are uh, transitioning towards net zero, or um, should uh, cause a firm to uh, make a payment to um, uh, companies that are uh, investing in um, carbon capture technology. Uh, so basically, the payment would be made to the party that has no incentive uh, to try and uh, to try and uh, cause the firm uh, to violate its commitment. Has no power uh, to do that either, um, and the party would use the payment um, to then help. Uh, to uh, reduce uh, global emissions, so that would be consistent with what the climate conscious investors would have wanted. So, how do you promote the implementation of green pills might develop with greater growth in climate conscious investment? So, it's a great question because we do, in fact, see quite a rapid rise in the number of ESG funds, sort of funds that care about um, environmental, social, and government governance um, characteristics of the companies they invest in. And of course, if you're running a fund like that, you're going to be interested in the commitments made by the companies you invest in, and therefore you might want to adopt uh, mechanisms like the Green Bill. So in general, we can say in an environment like this, if we see climate conscious investment uh, increase, we would also expect to see increased demand for credible corporate climate commitments. And therefore, you would expect to see uh, the increased implementation of mechanisms that credibly embed uh, that corporate climate commitment. Now, of course, the Green Bill is not the only mechanism uh, that could result in something like that in a way you can think of uh, credible regulatory enforcement against greenwashing and green pills as, as being at least partial substitutes. Uh, but that regulatory enforcement at the moment, particularly uh, in Europe, uh, is still quite modest. And so in the absence of a commitment mechanism of that nature, you would actually expect uh, the number of green pills that's being, that, that is adopted uh, to rise. Um, the result of that is actually quite valuable because what it means is that even if once the you know even if later on the interest in meeting climate objectives uh, fades or reduces a little bit, uh, then the green pills because they are in place uh, still make sure that firms deliver on their climate commitment at least up to the point uh, where doing so. Uh, is still uh, economically uh, viable. So that's um, you know about the point that John, John mentioned about the quantum of the payments under the Green Bill, uh, tailoring the commitment uh, of the firm. Um, so once firms have these Green Pills, once the climate conscious investors have managed to get them adopted, uh, you've actually locked in climate commitment um, for much longer. It's worth pointing out, however, that the rise in climate conscious investment uh, isn't uh, a trend that we can take for granted. Um, in fact, we also see a counter-movement at the moment where companies and boards say, well, wait a second, uh, we're happy to commit, but only if that commitment is one that is effectively non-credible, if that's one that we can renege on. So um, we've seen actually quite a bit of greenwashing be exposed uh, recently. Uh, just to give you some examples, uh, an oil manager called BP uh, had committed to go green, uh, but has recently rolled back its climate commitments. Uh, another example is that of the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, GFANS, which is uh, set up and spearheaded by Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England. Uh, that's effectively a group of financial institutions that collectively had agreed 
uh, that they would move their investments to net zero. Um, but now that it turns out that there may be some legal bite to those commitments, you can see various companies that had previously signed up uh, now stepping away from that alliance. And so in that sense, there is a lesson that we can take from the adoption or the lack of adoption of green pills. Um, if we don't see credible commitment mechanisms accompanying climate pledges, then we should be quite worried that the private sector isn't going to practice what it preaches. And in a way, this flips the takeaway from the paper because there is no excuse not to adopt a green pill if you're serious about meeting your climate objectives. Uh, as John said, it is entirely consistent with corporate law to implement a mechanism like that. And so in a way, a lack of a, of, uh, a commitment mechanism of this nature might also suggest that the private sector is, in fact, not serious about uh, transitioning volunt voluntarily uh, to net zero. And that would mean uh, governments have an additional reason to step up their game. Yes, thank you for expanding on the role that green pills can play in the role of corporate governance. Um, would you say that this instrument is limited to um, ensuring credibility for corporate climate commitments solely, or could it be linked to broader sustainability goals? So that's a really great question. In the paper, we limit ourselves to a discussion of corporate climate commitments because there is a sort of specific investment logic to climate change. Uh, but in theory, the instrument could be used across a whole range of non-financial commitments that firms may want to enter into. And so we do, in fact, see sustainability-linked bonds that have KPIs unrelated to climate change that, for example, focus on equal pay, uh, gender representation on the boards, uh, or a cleaning up of supply chain practices. And there's no reason why the green bill mechanism that we described uh, couldn't be equally effective in those contexts uh, as it might be in the context of climate change. Thank you. And I think throughout of our discussion, you've highlighted that current corporate governance practices are failing to keep corporations on track to meet commitments of um, net zero. And given that this is such an important issue, what can listeners themselves do to get involved in helping to achieve this goal of ensuring that uh, reducing carbon emissions is taken seriously? Thank you. Um, that's a great question. And um, I think one thing that uh, listeners can do is just to uh, reflect on how um, basic components of private law, uh, company law, and more fundamentally contract law uh, can be used to uh, facilitate outcomes that are helping to encourage companies to uh, reduce emissions and helping to fight the battle uh, against the climate crisis. Um, so these these subjects are not um, normally labelled as uh, tools to be used against uh, climate crisis, but they are um, at a very basic level uh, frameworks of private law that facilitate what parties want. Uh, and so, if parties do want uh, to engender commitments to uh, reduce emissions, then they can use these frameworks to do so. Uh, and that's something that listeners who are um, current students or who are thinking about studies in the future uh, can think about uh, in uh, approaching those topics. So what this all illustrates is that climate change is quite a legally disruptive development where we can see the adoption and use of legal tools in this novel context uh, being quite innovative. Um, to understand that legally disruptive nature of climate change and other sustainability challenges, uh, we have a few years ago created the Oxford Sustainable Law Programme, which is a collaboration between the Faculty of Law uh, and the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment uh, here at Oxford. And what we do at the programme is we try to think about how legal tools can catalyze and reinforce the sustainability transition. Um, that involves studying how the law is being used in that context, but also trying to be imaginative about how the law could be used. And the Green Pills paper uh, that we've talked about uh, today is one uh, very good example of that. What it also illustrates is that when we think about the climate crisis and its relationship to the law, we shouldn't just think 
about the traditional area of environmental law, we should think across the board around how different uh, subsets uh, of the legal system uh, could be employed. Um, and that means that what we do at the Sustainable Law Program is to collaborate across legal disciplines. But in fact, we also go beyond that and we work with uh, experts from non-legal disciplines too. Because if we really want to understand uh, the way in which the law is or could be used, we also need to have a really good understanding of the financial environment in which companies operate and how that financial environment is affected, in this case, by climate change. We need to understand climate change itself uh, and the risks and benefits uh, that it generates, in this case, again, uh, for firms. And that really is the kind of challenge that the Sustainable Law Program uh, is set up to meet. So it's a multidisciplinary research group and it's a research group that um, students and academics and practitioners who might be listening to this podcast can get involved in because we're always looking uh, for research assistance. Uh, we're working on a sort of legal clinic where experts can get involved in. Um, and that is work that involves litigation, it involves policy work, and it involves the kind of contractual work that we've been talking about today. So it's very diverse, and we're always looking for people who want to help us uh, do this quite complex, but uh, socially important and highly salient uh, mission. Yes, and I think the message of looking at legal frameworks to resolve um, such tangible and important issues is a really um, key takeaway. So thank you so much for that. Professor Arm and Professor Wetzer, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been a really great discussion today. Thank you. Thank you. It's been uh, a great pleasure to be here. That was Professor Armour and Professor Wetzer speaking with us on green pills and making corporate climate commitments credible. For more legal writings and discussions on other topics, visit the OUULJ's blog and read our annual publications. Thank you.